Okay, folks, we're moving along. Uh, depending on how fast you listen tonight, we will maybe get through all three churches. But, uh, we're looking at the church at Sardis tonight. That's one of the bad churches. You remember we had uh, two good churches, three semi-good churches, and two bad churches. And this is one of the bad ones. And despite the... Uh, Seemingly invincible location of the city of Sardis. Uh, we know that it was lost to invaders several times in its history, uh, even before John wrote this letter. Uh, both losses for the city of Sardis was a result of overconfidence, smugly dwelling in their fortress-like city, relying on their past glories, The leadership and the citizenry were too lazy to watch and defend themselves from any possible uh, enemies that might come in. Each time they were so sure of themselves that they did not even post a night watch. And each time they fell captive without so much as as a skirmish. So you should be aware of what has happened to the city when we, historically, when we look at what uh, is concerned the uh, the letter and the church that Paul is writing, uh, John is writing to, in Sardis. When John wrote this letter, Sardis was a wealthy but degenerate city. The church at Sardis had won a good reputation at one time. The members thought they had arrived. They had grown content in the beautiful buildings they had erected on the corner of self-satisfaction and complacency street. And so Christ stands before the church at Sardis as he who has the seven spirits of God, which we see there in that first verse in chapter 3. He says, And to the angel of the church at Sardis write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And so we learned earlier the number of seven represents complete, completeness or fullness. And so the seven spirits of God is obviously a reference to the completeness of the Spirit's ministry. And as we shall see as we go along, the Lord is emphasizing the presence of the Holy Spirit. Since the death of the church was due to their refusal to yield to the Spirit's control. There in chapter 1, verse 1 that we just read, it says that Christ also has the seven stars, which we know are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. In essence, Christ is reminding the church that ultimately He is the one who controls the churches. And we're going to find that this letter has a different tone from the previous letters. Who, Looking at the poor but rich church in Smyrna, we found that the Lord had nothing but words of praise for that church. For the church at Ephesus and Pergamos and Thyatira, he had a mixture of praise and criticism. However, to the majority of this church uh, here in Sardis, he has nothing praiseworthy to say. Christ says there in verse 2, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And I have not found your works perfect, before God. Now there are a few in the church that the Lord commends 
as we see there in verse 4. But the church as a whole, he has no good things to say, and this is especially interesting in light of the reputation the church apparently enjoyed. Because yes, the church did have a good reputation, but it was spiritually dead. You see, Sardis may have been the first church in history to have been filled with what we call nominal Christians. And unfortunately, they were not the last. Remember, Smyrna was put to death and yet lived. Whereas Sardis appears to be alive, but it's dead. You see, the Lord is never impressed by the attractiveness of a well-kept mausoleum, especially knowing that the inside of that mausoleum contains the bones of dead men. And again, I quote John Stott, the English Anglican theologian, who said, we can have a fine choir, we can have an expensive organ, <clears throat> we can have good music, we can have great anthems, we can have fine congregational singing. In fact, we can mouth hymns and psalms with unimpeachable elegance, even while our mind wanders and our heart is far away from God. We can have pomp and ceremony. We can have color and ritual. We can have liturgical exactness and ecclesiastical splendor and yet be offering a worship which is not perfect or fulfilled in the sight of God. So this dead and dying church, uh, which Christ is, is addressing here, he gives them five exhortations. The first one he says is you need to be watchful. The Greek word for watchful conveys the idea of one who is intent upon something. And it literally comes from two words. It means to chase sleep. You see, Christ's exhortation is a call to keep watch as a watchman responsible for the safety of a sleeping army. It is a call to be sensitive. It's a call to be alert. And so the first step toward renewal in a dying church is admitting a problem exists and then committing to protect it from further decay and somehow or another stop the bleeding. And so Christ's warning to this church is sobering. He says there in verse 3, If you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief in the night, and you will not know what hour I will come to you. While many would interpret what he has to say there as the second coming of the Lord, it's more probably a stern warning against a sudden judgment which God will bring upon this individual church if it does not watch and repent. He says, keep watch. The second exhortation that Christ gives is strengthening the things which remain that are ready to die. You see, we can better understand the things which remain if we keep re reading in verse 4, he says, You have a, a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And what he is saying is that there are still some who have not yet capitulated to the times. They are faithful remnant. And so you be supportive of them. Be watchful. Stay uh, supportive uh, of, of, the, of the ones who are there. And thirdly, he says, the Lord exalts the church to be submissive to the control of the Holy Spirit. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. You see, this instruction takes us back to the description of the Lord as the one who has the seven spirits of God. 
Because when Christ challenged the church to remember how they received and heard, he is reminding them of the importance of the Holy Spirit. Every believer receives and hears the same way, which is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even today, we can administer great projects, we can create impressive committees, but we often leave the Holy Spirit out. He has rightly been called the forgotten member of the Trinity. And it's only when the Church of Christ is filled with the Spirit of Christ that uh, spiritual death can be banished and a name for having life can, can uh, really be alive and, and real within it. The fourth exhortation he has given to the church, he says, is hold fast. The absence of Bible doctrine or the presence of doctrinal error will kill a church. Churches that are hovering on the edge of death should take a note on this clear command. The life of the church depends on two teachings. The teaching of the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then Christ brings forth a fifth exhortation. He says to be sorry and repent. And he, he makes that request very short. He simply says, repent. This is the same word of instruction given to the churches at Ephesus. It's the instruction that was given to Pergamos. You see, God's method of recovery is always the same. If we want to have renewed fellowship with Him, we must repent of our sin. And then we have what he gives as three points or three promises to those in Sardis who are true to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the overcomers. And he gives us that in verse 5. First of all, he says, they will be clothed in white. Secondly, he says, they shall be continued in the book. And he says, they shall be confessed before the Father. Those who have kept themselves pure are promised that they will walk with Christ in white. And this is a significant promise to the Sardian Christians since it reminded them of the day of the Roman triumph because on this day, all true Roman citizens wore white togas and participated in a majestic, triumphant procession. Folks, I don't know how close uh, Paul came to John. We only have one reference to, uh, to their getting together. It was when he came and, and met with Peter, James, and John, and they extended the right hand of fellowship to him. Uh, so I don't know that they, they talked a whole lot about it, but, but they both witnessed what went on during the Roman Empire time. And a lot of times we need to be dealing with history as well as with the Scripture in order to get a, a full understanding of some of the things that was taking place at that time. Paul says over in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 14, Paul says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. And we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. 
To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? You know, we have somewhat of a misconception, first of all, about how we are to live our lives as Christians. We, we think we just get by. Uh, to use the football analogy, we, we're going to make it to heaven, but somebody's going to have to kick a field goal in the last few minutes for us to get there. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, God who always leads us in triumph. We're always going to be victorious. Uh, when you're looking at history, as, as John is referring to here, thinking about the days of the Roman triumph, we think about what Paul is saying here when he brings that up. If you happened to be in Rome on a particular day and you walked out of wherever you were staying and there was a particular peculiar odor uh, smelling going on, you would recognize that as the fact that the Roman army had been out in battle and they were on the way back. They had been victorious. And, and when that happened, they always sent a runner to say, we're coming back, we've been victorious. And there would be a parade in front of the emperor there. And the, <clears throat> the priests would be out there with their censers and the trumpeters would be out there and the people would be lined in the street. And, and in the midst of that, the, the victorious uh, commanders would be coming back with their chariots and they would have the, uh, the commanders of the, of the army that they had just defeated chained to the back of their chariots. And so they would be coming into town and they would smell this same aroma that the people there were smelling, which was for Victoria, uh, victorious. <clears throat> so that's when Paul says, uh, the fragrance of his knowledge is every place. He's saying that, that uh, to one, we are the aroma of death to death. Those guys who are coming back in there those defeated soldiers who were tied to that chariot, they knew death was going to be their next step. And to the other, the Roman of life to life. These were the victorious Romans who were coming back, who were fixing to parade in front of the emperor. And so Paul is saying, this is, this is what was happening in pagan Rome. And so Paul decided to baptize this pagan uh, ritual and he says that at one time we were in battle with Christ and Christ was triumphant over us. And now he has us chained to his chariots. And everywhere Christ goes, we got to go. Wherever his footprint leads, our footprint will follow. Now the thing we'll have problem with that is being chained to a chariot. We don't like that concept. I don't like it. I'd rather be up there riding with Jesus telling him how to drive. <laughs> Lord, can't we go a little faster? You know, these, these, these last times have been very hard. Can't we move on past this? Look at those people over there riding on that smooth road. They're making a lot of progress and here we are stuck back here. Can't we, can't we put the pedal to the metal and go a little faster? And Lord, I think there's a, there's a rest stop up there. We've been going pretty hard. Can't we just stop and rest? We want to advise the Lord on how we need to be going in this triumphant uh, process that He's leading us through. And so when we, when we stay chained to the chariot, 
There is nothing, there is no situation in life that can come against us that we can't handle as long as we are behind the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we wake up in the morning and everything seems to be astray, everything is bad, we think back, last night I went to bed, I was still chained to the chariot, I was still following Christ. It leads us to make two decisions. One is, if God led me into it, He'll lead me out of it. And first of all, and second of all, He has already been there. If I'm following Him, He has already been where I am right now. So He's going to to lead us. And so what Paul is saying and what John is saying here is something historical. But we need to combine that with the Scripture so that we understand what these men were going through and where the Lord was leading them to make the decisions and make the the uh, give us the information that they've given us. Christ was reminding these true true believers that they would one day walk in triumph with Him. He says that 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 you would you would walk with Christ in white, and that you would be with Him uh, in the parade that He is going to to put forth. Additionally, Christ promised the true believers that He would not blot out their names from the book of life. Now, this promise is best understood in light of another historical context. You see, in every city of that day, a registry was kept of all the citizens of the city. If one of the citizens conducted themselves in a disloyal or treacherous way, he was publicly dishonored and his name was erased from the registry. But on the other hand, if a citizen distinguished himself with some loyal or brave act, his name would be inscribed in gold letters. Our Lord's words that come to the overcomers in Sardis are emphatic. He will never erase their names from the heavenly register. They shall be continued in the book. And literally the the text says, I will never by any means blot out his name. Now, Brother Randy explained this to us one day about how this is in the Greek with the use of the double negatives. And the double negatives produce a positive. We know that there are probably somewhere around 200 double negatives in the Bible. I think the one that is, uh, that is most prominent, that gives us most idea of what they are talking about here, is the... Uh, One we find in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. And your Bible stand not fall. (laughs) (laughs) Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Folks, what we have here is five double negatives. The literal meaning here is, I will never, that's one, ever leave you, that's two. No, I will never, that's three. Four, I will never forsake you, that's five. We left out four here, it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In this we find that there are five double negatives which give a very positive message. What it says is that the Lord will never, ever, no, not once, ever 
forsake or leave us. And if they are clothed in white, He's saying that they will not be blocked out. That name will not be blocked out. He will not forsake them. And the final promise He gives is, I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Folks, that's better than having your name written in gold. Again, history says the final celebration on the day of the Roman Trump uh, triumph was held before the emperor. Here the victorious captain would publicly acknowledge the worth of the faithful citizen of Rome. So getting back to Sardis and the death of this church, you see, it's impossible to kill a church from the outside. History has shown that the greater the persecution from without, the stronger the church becomes. We saw a good example of that in in the principle uh, because that was the suffering church at Smyrna. Likewise, we can also rule out death by suicide. The church at Sardis did not die on purpose. There was no definite or deliberate break with the Lord. The members of the church had not called a meeting to renounce all allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the church of Sardis did not die because it was abandoned by God or those who were true to Him. The remnant is a living, living testimony to the availability of God's spiritual provision. They were alive, but they were surrounded by the dead. And so the death of Sardis was not because of some outside influence and not by suicide. But there are several things that did lead to the death of the church at Sardis. One was the death of its individual members. Folks, that's a sobering thought. The church lives only as its individual members live. I was at Morningside over a period of three or four last years that I was there. I probably had funerals for 30 to 40 senior adults, which uh, made a great impact on that congregation. You've got to have members to have a church. Another cause of the death of the church was relying on its past reputation. Earlier in their history, the church had won a great reputation and they were still basking in their past accomplishments. By the time this letter was written, complacency had set in. They had slipped quietly into the sleep of death. The church at Sardis was taken captive in exactly the same way that the city had been taken twice before through a heavy dose of overconfidence. Overconfidence is a familiar road to defeat of many churches. Many churches have died while members were congratulating each other on their abundant life. And then sin was another major cause of death. Many in the church were wearing soiled garments, not white garments. Beneath the polished reputation of the Sardis church was secret sin. Herodotus The historian records that over the course of many years, the church had required a reputation for lax moral standards and even open sin. And then a final final and foremost cause of death in this church in Sardis was spiritual insensitivity. They did not discern their own spiritual (coughs) condition. The church was like Samson who lost God and did not even know about it. Judges 16, verse 20, that when danger threatened Samson, he rose up with his old confidence, saying, I will go out as before 
at other times and shake myself free. But then the scripture reads, but Samson did not know that the Lord had departed. And this could be the inscription written on the tombstone of the churches at Sardis, along with the 4,500 churches that closed in the United States last year. So what will kill a church? The death of its members, definitely. Reliance on its past. Sin and spiritual insensitivity. So lies the church at Sardis. go to a good church, Philadelphia. Like the church at Smyrna, Philadelphia is a church that hears a lot of positive comments from the Lord, and we'll take a look at and examine just how Christ commands and encourages them. Of all the churches, this is one you may remember because its name is familiar. We know the name in Greek means brotherly love. As Smyrna, Philadelphia receives no word of condemnation from the Lord. This church has both right doctrine and right living. You see, their doctrine is present without love. You see, when doctrine is present without love, you have legalism. And when love is present without doctrine, then you have humanism. And so as the Lord writes to this church in Philadelphia, He designates Himself in a very interesting way. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. When Christ refers to himself as the one who is holy, he is saying that he is the one who embodies the characteristic that God alone possesses. Therefore, he is qualified to call the Christians at Philadelphia to a life of faith in Him. He's calling them to be holy as He is holy. Christ is also the one who is true or genuine. He is totally reliable. Jesus' genuineness linked with His holiness brings out the great truth that character and conduct go together. Genuine godly conduct is a product of holiness This is what Christ is, and this is what He calls us to be. We look back in Revelation, where we started there in chapter 1, verse 18. We saw that Christ said that He has the keys to Hades and to death. And here we're told that He has the key to David. We know that Isaiah speaks of Elohim, who was given the key to the house of David. That's in Isaiah 22, 22. It appears that at one time Shebna was the prime minister over the house of the king of Hezekiah. Because of his pride, he was thrown out of that position. He even had a statue built of himself. He tore down a bunch of houses. In the city, he built a pool that he wanted. Problem was, he didn't have the authority to do that. So that position was given to Elohim, along with the key to the house of David in the city of David. You see, the house that they're talking about is the house that contains all the king's valuables, all the silver, the gold, all the spices, the armor, and the king's treasure. And now only Elohim could open or close that door. 
And so here Jesus Christ is pictured in the same way. He has the key to truth and the key to holiness, as well as opportunity and service and testimony. Christ is assuring the church in Philadelphia that even though they were surrounded by wickedness, He has the power to open any door according to His sovereign will. As the Lord relates the status of the church, He states that He is already using His key for the church. He says there in verse 8, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Christ is opening the door for this loving church, giving them the opportunity to reach out to a lost world. He is the great door opener. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who prepares the hearts of men to receive the gospel message. It is not our plans. It's not our tracks. It's not our crusades. It's not our feeble witnessing. Philadelphia church is then commended because it has a little strength. And the original language just carries the thought of having little strength within itself. Now in our human thinking, this doesn't sound like very complimentary that uh, this church had little strength. For we think we must be men and women of steel and iron in order to get the world's, the God, God's work accomplished. But you see, God says that His strength is perfected in our weakness. Therefore, the source, the source of the Christian power lies in the Lord and not in ourselves. The Philadelphia church understood this principle and is serving accordingly. These Christians might not have been much to look at on the outside, but they were mighty in the hands of God. We also find that the church is commended for keeping the Word of God. All of this there in verse 8. In the midst of a world that denied the Scriptures, this church believed them to be authoritative. Not only did they believe God's Word, but they kept God's Word. And finally, Christ commends the church because they have not denied His name. In that period of time, there was great controversy concerning the deity of Jesus Christ, but the Christians in Philadelphia had stood up strongly for His divine nature. Church growth experts have said that the four characteristics of the Philadelphia church are usually found in churches that are having a vibrant testimony for Jesus Christ. They have a door of opportunity that's been opened by God. They have a sense of their own powerless, powerlessness apart from Christ. They have a commitment to the Word of God. and They have an absolute doctrinal integrity. When these qualities are present, you will see a church that is on the move for God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so having commended the church, Christ makes some very interesting promises. To them, He promises to humiliate the enemies of the church and to cause them to look to the church for direction and guidance. In verse 9, He says, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. When I read that and saw that, I thought about the 23rd Psalm where he says, I will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Then Christ makes a promise that really has prophetic ramifications. He says in verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The Lord has a special plan that will keep the Philadelphia church as well as all true believers 
from the worldwide tribulation which is to come. And here the hour of trial that they that is mentioned there uh, is translated to the hour of testing or to the hour of temptation. This is certainly a reference to the great tribulation which we will describe and talk about later, uh, certainly in this study. But one thing we need not miss here, you will notice that Christ did not say, I will keep you through this hour of trial. But He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Folks, this refers to the rapture when Jesus will collect all of God's people for Himself. You see, Christ's method of keeping us from the hour of trial would be by removing us altogether from the place of testing or tribulation. I believe further evidence that the church will not go through the hour of tribulation lies in the structure of the book of Revelation. In the first three chapters of the book, the word church is found 19 times. We'll find that between chapters 4 and chapters 20, the tribulation is described, but the church is never mentioned again as being on earth. We are pre-tribulation in our beliefs. and We clearly see in that promise to the faithful Philadelphians that the church will not go through the tribulation. However, there are three positives or three positions to the rapture. There is the pre-tribulation period, which we just discussed. The view states that all true believers will be raptured out before the tribulation. The second view is that the church will be raptured in the middle of the tribulation, or as the great tribulation begins. And those that hold a third view believe that we will live through the tribulation and be raptured with the Lord at the end. Folks, it's wise to know what we believe, because otherwise we will be shaken by every headline, catastrophe, every apostasy that arises in our day. Christ's third promise to them is seen in verse 11 and 12. He says, remember, the first promise is I'll humiliate their enemies. His second promise was that he'll keep them from the hour of trial and from the tribulation. And now his third promise sort of coincides with the promise to keep them from the hour of trial when he says, behold, I am coming quickly. The overcomers will be permanently in Christ's presence as his intimate possession in his eternal kingdom. He says he will make them a pillar in the temple. And we'll get a description of that pillar that he's talking about in 1 Kings chapter 7. We see that these are not going to be pillars that are used to hold up the roof. These will be monuments of the grace of God a monument that will never be removed. Verse 12 says, It will be for believers who fought the good fight and came out victorious. And so, what does all this have to do with us? I believe the types of Christians that we have studied in the letters of the churches may exist in any given church today. There are the Ephesian churches who are abandoning their first love. There are the Smyrnan churches who are being persecuted for their faith. There are the Thyatira churches, goers who are burdened with sexual sin, and they are modern members of Pergamos attending there where Satan has his foothold. There are the Sardians who are among the walking dead. And then there are these Philadelphians who are taking advantage of their open door to minister because they're obedient to Christ and they're filled with brotherly love. 
You see, the church at Sardis possessed all the same qualities as the church at Philadelphia, including an open door. However, they refused to walk through it. As a result of this choice, the church died. And yes, there are many churches like this today. The qualities of the Philadelphia church are necessary in the church. It is not enough to have the Word of God. It is not enough to believe the truth. If their church does not accept the opportunity that God opens before them, the church will die. The thing that will kill a church is an inbred group of people sitting and talking about their prophetic understanding and knowledge of doctrine. They never go through the open door to reach the region beyond for which they are alone are the key. The church that has a vibrant vision but stops believing God for great things is in trouble. To quote an old southern preacher, it's time for our church to wake up, to sing up, to preach up, to never give up or let up, or back up or shut up until the church is filled up or we go up. Amen. Amen. How much time have I got? Eight minutes. I accidentally left my watch at home. Okay, we're going to finish. The letter to Laodicea, the bad church. In the message to Laodicea, we see the most needy of the seven churches. Full of indifference and spiritual deception, this church is greatly admonished by the Lord. But then in all His mercy, Christ offers His counsel for overcoming their failures. Being under Roman rule, the city became very wealthy and profited greatly as a center for banking, for medicine, and for business. Unfortunately, this economic sufficiency lulled the church to sleep. The church at Laodicea intrigues us because it represents the last church in history. Folks, literally, this is the church of the end. That fact alone makes every single word of this letter of great interest since it will tell us what to expect from the church at the end of the ages. As in the other letters, the Lord described Himself using the attributes that are lacking in the church to whom He writes. Here He calls Himself the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Find that in verse 14 there. As the Amen, Jesus is the final word. He is the faithful and true witness who stands in stark contrast to the deceit and superficiality that characterizes the Laodicean assembly. The Lord strips away the false security of the church and reveals all the emptiness that is within it. As Christ gives His diagnosis of this church, He has nothing good to say. Unlike His message to the other six churches, Christ does not commend them for anything. He exposes all their failures, yet He also gives them a prescription for healing and for hope. Christ points out that the church at Laodicea is, number one, a compromising church. He says that there in verse 15 and 16. It is evident that being lukewarm is obviously utter obnoxious to God. When God looks at apostasy, He gets angry. But when He looks at indifference, He gets sick. 
This church was a half-hearted church. Probably none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, the sentimental, the nominal, the skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among our churches today. You see, lukewarm Christians are comfortable and complacent because they have compromised their beliefs and their behavior. And still worse, they do not recognize their need. They're afraid to take a stand on anything because they do not want to offend anyone. But apparently they have no fear of offending God. Lukewarm Christians say they are wholeheartedly for the Lord, but they are afraid of being on fire for Christ. They do not want to be labeled as fanaticists. They do not want to be emotionalists or extremists. On the other hand, they find it quite acceptable to be enthusiastic about entertainment, about sports, about life in general. He says this church is also a conceited church. He says that in verse 17. As a contrast, the church at Smyrna thought that it was poor and it was literally rich. But this Laodicean church boasted that they were rich, but in fact they were really poor. The city of Laodicea was a wealthy banking center, and maybe the spirit of the marketplace had crept into the church. The values of the church had become twisted, and most likely the church was measuring the, the success of their ministry by human standards instead of spiritual values. You see, by the world's standards, the church was a success, and they were proud of their accomplishments. Folks, I believe this letter to the church at Laodicea is here in the book to remind us that the church in the last days will be equally boastful and blind. As it accumulates wealth, it will yield its power and influence to the world. And I really don't think power and influence is what Jesus will be looking at in the last days. Because as always, the mission of the church is the redemption of the lost. Redemption of lost souls, the winning of this world to the cause of Christ, and doing the work of God as outlined in the Bible. And we must not be sidetracked from the mission of God. Not only was the Laodicean church half-hearted, church compromising, conceited, it was also Christless. There in verse 20, we see Christ standing on the outside of the church, knocking on the, knocking on the door to gain entrance. What a sad and tragic picture. His church had gone on without him, and he wants to be a part of it again. And so will this be the condition of the church at the time that Christ returns? We learn that God is that the God of the universe really tries to give counsel to this sick, lukewarm church. And as a doctor prescribes medicine for a sick human body, so the physician prescribes help for this weak spiritual body. For the disease of spiritual compromise, Christ prescribes repentance and zeal there in verse 19. Although he has threatened to vomit them out of his mouth, the Lord offers them an opportunity to repent. And following their repentance, he says that zeal is to characterize their walk with Christ. And then Christ's second prescription is for spiritual poverty. Verse 18 there, even though Christ has diagnosed the Laodicean church as being poor, He gives them a chance to be truly rich. They are no longer to trust in their banks. They are to come to the One who has real gold. 
Christ can open their eyes to behold a spiritual wealth of which they now know nothing. His third prescription is for spiritual nakedness. The Laodiceans were like the emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's story. They thought they were clothed in spirit and splendor when they were really naked. Their deeds were empty in Christ's sight. Nevertheless, Jesus counseled the church to buy from him white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, knowing that his clothing of fine linen, clean and white, symbolizes the righteousness and the acts of believers. The fourth prescription that Christ offers the church is for spiritual blindness. Again, he's speaking there in verse 18. You see, Laodicea was famous for manufacturing an eye salve that was sold all over Rome. Jesus was reminding the blind church that they needed, to, they needed more than eye salve to see. They needed the truth of God to heal their spiritual eyes. The Lord's final prescription is to the invitation to fill their Christlessness. Since Christ does not force himself on anyone, he issues an invitation. But an invitation demands a response. Ultimately, the only cure for a lukewarm church is readmitting the one they have excluded. Even when church hierarchies refuse to allow, refuse to allow Christ's entrance into their organization, he still knocks at the door of individual hearts. Certainly the church at Laodicea had all the riches, but none of the power. They had been living by the gold stand, but not by God's standard. They were compromising, conceited, and Christless, but Jesus was calling them back to himself. The Lord's message to the church at Laodicea that exists today is the same. Be zealous, repent. Christ is extending his invitation to any and all who will open the door, and opening that door means letting Christ reign. The one who do, their zeal will never die. Okay, we finished the churches. Next week we'll begin to get into uh, what all is taking place in heaven. Uh, the church has left. The church is no longer here on earth. It's now in heaven, along with the elders and the, and the angels and the creatures and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a very interesting situation there. So we look forward to moving on into that.